I'm getting quite tired of what I view as toxic positivity as a mantra that is sort of enforced without evidence in climate circles. And by that, I mean, there are folks who say we can only talk about the benefits, we can only talk about win-win scenarios. And I have to say that is actually bullshit. We know that about 10% of the global population causes about half of household climate pollution. If you earn over 38,000 US dollars a year, you're likely in that group of top 10% of emitters. Fossil industries are trying to position themselves as a necessary part of the solution. They're trying to claim that they are aligned with climate action, but independent analysis shows that in fact they are not. We can't sacrifice the stability of the climate and the livability of the world for a small number of unsustainable jobs. Hey peeps, we are approaching the end of the season on promoting alternative proteins. Today, you will hear from two speakers. Our first one is Kimberly Nicholas, a senior lecturer in sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. Kimberly holds a PhD in environment and resources from Stanford University. She has published over 50 articles on climate and sustainability in leading peer-reviewed journals and is the author of the book Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. I love her take on toxic positivity and how pointing out the issues in our existing system, e.g. animal agriculture, <laughs> is important to drive change. I really appreciate when our interview guests have quite different and opposing views because it gets us thinking. So let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to season three on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now. And sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Kimberly, it's lovely to have you on Red to Green. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. So you have, one could say, more of a generalist's background, at least in terms of looking at the topic of promoting alternative proteins. We have a lot of people listening who work in the field and who care a lot about sustainability. What would you advise them in terms of how they can get active to work against the slowing down of the industry? Great question. You named a lot of really important issues there. So I would start by saying what the science tells us is that we don't need from a sustainability perspective, we don't need to aim for everybody being vegan. If you look at the Eat Lancet report, that outlines what a healthy and sustainable diet would look like. And it's not a vegan diet, but it is a primarily plant-based diet. It has the equivalent of about two hamburgers per month. So that's the quota or the limit, the budget of beef consumption, for example. Um, a couple of eggs per week, a couple of servings of chicken and fish per week, uh, a dairy serving equivalent to a glass of milk or a, a piece of cheese about the size of your thumb. So basically putting plants at the center of the plate and animal-based products, if they're included, are an accent, a highlight, something that is uh, drawing out flavor or included as a special treat, but not at the center. And so I think that kind of mindset shift is important to promote throughout the food industry, basically. Then in terms of overcoming entrenched interests. I think one thing that research has shown is that what's necessary to make change happen quickly is good networks. So communities who communicate well and have trust in each other. And 
I think focusing on community building and on strengthening community ties is something that's really important to be able to make change happen quickly. So for example, I know that DEFRA, the UK Environment Agency, is focused on in some of their agricultural sustainability efforts, focused on rolling out practices through ambassadors. So targeting people who are key in their communities, who have good connections and are trusted by the farmers in their area to pilot or carry out and demonstrate new practices and help spread them in the community by showing that they work and having people being able to go out on the field and kick the tires, see what it looks like in practice, talk with someone who's actually done it, who they know and trust and have a relationship with. So I think that kind of community building is something that's really important to consider in being able to adopt new changes quickly. Overcoming lobbying, I think there's both a push and a pull factor to it. I mean, my own research, some of it focuses on European agricultural policy, the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy. So that is the single largest budget item as a European taxpayer. Almost 40% of our money goes to that program. And what our research has shown for the first time is breaking down actually geographically where that money goes and to which measures it goes to. And what was known before is that the cap is very unequal. It's promoting and favoring big farmers and large landowners. And what we showed is that it's actually increasing income inequality. So the poorest farmers get proportionately less money than the richest farmers. So even though the original intention is to make it possible to make a living as a farmer, which certainly benefits society, and there's good reasons to do that, what's actually happening with the cap money is that it is enriching the already high-income farmers who make more than the European average, and it's not actually helping the low-income farmers. So I think reforming policies and subsidies is a really important part of the equation, along with the community building at the grassroots level. Mm, Yeah, that aligns with some of the topics that we have had on the podcast already. And I find it quite interesting. One of the most, I would say, controversial interviews that we had was with Jack Abobo. I actually yesterday moderated a panel with him and I was pointing that out to him again because I feel his opinion is that the industry should be very, very careful in criticizing animal agriculture. They should not be bashing animal agriculture, but actually you could just also call it educating people on what's wrong with the conventional system, right? And the reason for that is because he says two things. One is that people don't like feeling like they have done things wrong, like meaning they don't want to feel judged for their past and current behavior of eating conventional meat. And then the other reason is that the corporations and the farmers will be against that because you say you're threatening my job and I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to be against that. And I would say you can point out that what is currently going on is not the best thing if you have a good alternative. So cultured meat could say the conventional agricultural system is pretty shit. It doesn't mean that you're shit. It just means that, well, things have been going wrong and you have a better solution now, right? And to the second point, I think that farmers will be against that anyway. So whether that's communicated or not, you know, by default, they will not be very happy about that. And an additional point, and and then I would love to hear your opinion on this, is that a third stakeholder is actually the governments. And I talked with Irina Gary, the CMO of Change Foods, about that in a recent episode. So the governments only move if there is some pressure and they understand, okay, this is really, really necessary because there's something severely wrong with our current system. And then the research funding 
will go towards the innovations. How would you see that topic? I have to say that personally, I'm getting quite tired of what I view as toxic positivity as a mantra that is sort of enforced without evidence in climate circles. And by that, I mean There are folks who say we can only talk about the benefits, we can only talk about win-win scenarios, we can only attract people with a positive vision, and this is sort of the only acceptable way of communicating or working on climate. And I have to say that is actually bullshit, both from an emotional point of view, where we know that real harm is being done by the climate crisis today, and from a research point of view, which really clearly demonstrates that what actually makes change happen and makes effective policies is a combination of push and pull factors. So you actually need both carrots and sticks. And there was a recent paper that showed that carrotism, this idea of only talking about sort of voluntary, particularly market-based attractive options as the only sufficient and necessary form of climate solution is itself a form of delay because it fails to acknowledge entrenched interests and power structures. It fails to acknowledge, as you're pointing out, historical evidence and trends. I think we do have to actually point out the harms from the systems of fossil fuels and industrial animal agriculture and demonstrate the need to quickly and safely and fairly shut down and replace those systems with something better. And of course, that includes fair treatment for the workers in those industries, a just transition that helps people make a living and find new jobs and get training that prepares them in a new economy. But we can't sacrifice the stability of the climate and the livability of the world for a small number of unsustainable jobs. In a previous interview, somebody working for GFI in US legislature said he isn't worried that much about the corporations being active against cell cultured meat because the drivers are the cattlemen associations. But for me, the question is just because it's the cattlemen association doesn't mean that the corporations are not behind it also because they're sort of connected to each other. And that's why I would love to hear your perspective on maybe parallels to other industries where the the workforce was trying to stop the innovation, but also the corporations are trying to stop the innovation. And one of the examples that you talk about in your book is the fossil fuel industry. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. So in Under the Sky We Make, I talk about the changes that we need to make to stabilize the climate to stop and ultimately reverse climate change and to stabilize the living world so that we have enough nature where both people and nature ecosystems and species can thrive. And the two big things we need to do to do that are to leave fossil fuels in the ground and switch to sustainable and regenerative agriculture. So from a climate perspective, about three quarters of climate pollution comes from burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. The science is now really clear that we have basically no remaining carbon budget for those energy sources. They have to stay in the ground and we need to very quickly transition to clean energy. And with land use and agriculture, the science is also very clear that we need to dramatically reduce the amount of animal consumption and rethink how the food system works, basically. So I think one of the parallels that jumped to my mind when you were describing the the issue is that right now, both renewable energy and plant-based meats are growing very quickly but constitute a relatively small percentage of the total either energy or food market, respectively. And ultimately, 
to solve the biodiversity crisis, we need to not just continue doing bad things and do good things on top of them, but actually shut down and plan for a transition away from fossil-based energy and unsustainable industrial animal agriculture, and instead replace those needs for energy and food with sustainable systems. Can you give us a bit of an insight into how the fossil fuel industry has used, for example, misinformation campaigns about climate change to reduce the action of legislature and environmental activists, etc.? Sure. Well, we now have a lot of evidence that the fossil fuel industry has engaged in lobbying and misinformation for a long time. A leading researcher in this area is Naomi Oreskes at Harvard and several of her collaborators. And for example, she and Jeffrey Supran a couple years ago showed that Exxon had internal information that was consistent with the science, namely that humans are causing climate change and it's bad. But their external communications, including paid advertorials in places like the New York Times focused on communicating uncertainty and advocating getting more information and not acting. So was basically in contrast with their internal findings and understanding. That's one example. Um, there are lots of examples. Richard Bruhl is another researcher who's done a lot of research in this area, and he's focused with colleagues on spending within lobbying and, for example, showed that in the U.S., about 10 times as much money has been spent by anti-climate action interests as by renewable energy and other advocates for making a clean energy transition. So basically, we partly can attribute the lack of climate action and ineffective and insufficient climate policies that we have today to a really uneven playing field that has been deliberately slowing and delaying and restricting acting on climate. And what are the key tactics that are being used to reduce that impact of the renewable innovation? Well, we can see an evolution over time. And I mean, what I say that everyone needs to know about climate change is boils down to just five things, which is it's warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad, we can fix it. And what we've seen over time is kind of paralleling these five points that initially there was contesting the evidence or casting doubt on the reality that the climate is warming. Now that evidence is just so completely overwhelming that it's basically impossible to ignore even with your own eyes, much less if you look at the accumulated data, which is very consistent and overwhelming. So the efforts to delay climate action have moved on to the next step was doubting whether the warming we see is human caused or whether scientists in fact agree on this point. And even that now has kind of is again really overwhelmingly established and it's much harder to make those arguments. Now the tactics of delay have shifted to partly questioning how serious the impacts are, but that's really losing credibility in a world where we've already warmed over one degree and we're already living through serious harms and losses from climate change. So I think the last ground of delay then is a shift in tactics where fossil industries are trying to position themselves as a necessary part of the solution. They're trying to claim that they are aligned with climate action and with, for example, the targets of the Paris Agreement, but independent analysis shows that in fact they are not and they don't have serious plans to actually transition away from burning carbon-based fossil fuels, which adds greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and continues warming. Fascinating. You know, there's this fantastic video by a YouTuber called Climate Town on BP and BP inventing the carbon footprint. And by the way, to anybody listening, I can really recommend checking out Climate Town. He covers climate-related topics specifically with a focus on greenwashing and lobbyism. And what's fascinating is that BP invented the personal carbon footprint 
with a huge marketing campaign, plastering posters all over cities and trying to explain the term and coin the term. There's this crazy image from the BP website where it shows this donut diagram and it shows a small part of the diagram being BP's own emissions. And then let's say like 80% plus of the diagram is the consumer's or the customer's emissions saying that, well, they produce the the oil, but they're not using the oil, so they're not responsible for the emissions, but it's the consumers and their personal carbon footprint. So it's titled The Consumer's Carbon Footprint. And I find that fascinating and shocking how this kind of communication is used to just twist reality and offload the responsibility of the corporation onto individual consumers who sometimes cannot even influence their personal carbon footprint completely because it's also made up of the carbon footprint of the schools, of the state departments, of just infrastructure facilities, etc. And I wonder how you see this offloading of corporate responsibility to individual's responsibility. Yeah, well, I think, unfortunately, there is a really long and rich history of finger pointing in climate action or lack thereof. And we see that between countries, we see that between producers or companies and consumers, basically everywhere you look, we see a very discouraging trend, which is people not taking responsibility for the part of emissions that they can control. And it's true that all of us are part of a bigger system and no one whether you're the head of a company or the head of a government or a normal citizen, no one of us can make all the changes that are necessary to actually get all the way down to zero climate pollution. But we all do have a role to play. And I think it is clear that the big oil companies have for a long time been evading that responsibility. And I think, well, last week, there was a big ruling in the Netherlands with Shell. The judge did hold Shell responsible for reducing emissions across the supply chain, including from consumers. So the legal system is starting to decide that and hold with the position that producers do have a responsibility. It's not sufficient to say, oh, we're just meeting market demand and consumers are entirely responsible. They do have to actually stop producing dangerous products. But one other thing I will add is that I do think that there is a group that does need to reduce our own personal carbon footprints of consumers. And that's a group that includes me, which is the high emitters, because we know that about 10% of the global population causes about half of household climate pollution. And that is an overconsumption problem that is not going to be solved by switching to clean energy, which we definitely need to do. But we actually do need to more fairly distribute emissions and get rid of luxury overconsumption emissions. So for that group, we do need behavior change and we do need to focus on individual changes. But for pretty much everyone else, it's sufficient or close to sufficient to focus on the structural system changes that are needed so that everyone can meet their needs in a climate-friendly way. Yeah, that's quite fascinating to separate these two groups a bit. And I, I never argued for personal changes not being important at all. I just sometimes feel that it's very easy for people to lose a sense of proportion. I know a friend of mine, we were talking and she's like, oh, you know, I want to only buy loose leaf tea now because I don't want to use tea bags. And I thought, okay, so so why? Because she's like, yeah, because I don't want the tea bags in the waste bin. And I said, but as far as I know, you're eating 
like a lot of meat, a lot of dairy. And I know it's a very sensitive topic to point that out, but we're good friends. So I was like, I think it's a question of proportions. And I'm not sure if investing in worrying about your tea bags is the best use of your energy and time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I write about that as well. So that was a big reason that I wanted to write Under the Sky We Make because I see friends agonizing over really tiny choices like this or losing their minds over shrink-wrapped cucumbers in the grocery store because they don't like the plastic. Well, it turns out that actually extends the life of the cucumber and prevents it from going to waste. And But the main point is, I mean... I wanted to boil down what the science says are the really key areas for us to focus on where we can know that we're effectively investing our limited time and energy. And basically for high emitters, which statistically, if you earn over 38,000 US dollars a year, you're likely in that group of top 10% of emitters who does need to pay attention to our personal footprint. So for those in that group, we going flight, car, and meat-free are the highest impact personal actions. For everybody engaging in politics and in changing incentives and systems of power and culture are really important. And I kind of break down what that looks like, but basically being an engaged climate citizen, joining with others in community, in movements, and in pushing our schools and employers and neighborhoods and politicians for change, there are really clear ways that have been shown to be effective to do that. And, and that's also an important part of the solution. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we are looking at large scale behavioral change in this sense, because meat has had a very important cultural context also and has an important cultural function for a lot of people. So switching that to other forms of meat is sometimes quite challenging. And I've been a believer that we cannot make the world vegan in due time. Yes, it is a bit of a trend, but I think it's not an exponential trend and it will take a lot, a lot of time and effort to make that change if it's at all possible. And therefore, these alternatives have an important role to play. But then the question is, okay, well, how do we switch really the mass of people to eat in a more sustainable way, specifically if they would use cell culture products, which, which aren't even on the market right now, but which will be on the market at some point? How do we make sure that they have a good reputation and are not going to be slowed down massively by the corporate influence, which... I think will definitely be the case in all big historical transitions where an incumbent was threatened, a whole established industry was threatened. They, they did not just go away from the play field and be like, oh, yeah, great, take our market share. <laughs> you know? No, they're not, they're not riding <laughs> off into the sunset quietly, that's for sure. I think the distinction there is not about transparency, but about uncertainty. I think the question is, uh, how to communicate uncertainty rather than whether uh, being fully transparent or not transparent. Let's move on to our next guest, Dr. Gulbano Kaptan. She's an associate professor in behavioral decision-making at the University of Leeds. Her research focuses on judgment with a special interest in food-related decision-making and risk and benefit communications. Do you think that novel foods are generally perceived as positive? It depends. With the novel foods, the issues about risk and benefit perceptions and also some moral values as well. There is early research by Slovak Fisher of Liechtenstein showing that non-experts' risk-benefit perceptions are quite different than 
expert perceptions. Usually expert understands risks or perceive risks as a probability of a negative consequence, like mm-hmm. probability of dying from a nuclear accident, let's say. However, public non-experts, their perception of risk is quite subjective. It's more qualitative. They think about the involuntariness, whether it is dreadful for the uh, next generations, etc. This research was conducted in 1970s, and they found that there were two dimensions, unknown and threat. So the more unknown risk is, or more dreadful it is, than the perceived risk is higher. So with novel foods and novel technologies, the main problem is perceiving them as unfamiliar, Hmm. However, it seems that now people are more positive than before about novel foods and novel technologies. Interesting. So that has to do with probably their trust also in science? Or how yes, is that connected? of course, trust is very important. Actually, trust is now becoming more and more important. Recent research showed that trust, knowledge and sociodemographic variables affect people's acceptance directly and sometimes indirectly through risk and benefit perception. In relation to trust, the recent Eurobarometer survey showed that trust in science is highest among others, and trust in journalists is the lowest one. Here, of course, in the area of novel puts, the trust cannot be achieved just by trusting in scientists. People also need to trust in government agencies, the regulators. They need to trust in policymakers. And more importantly, they need to trust in the industry. When you said that trust in scientists is the highest and trust yes. in journalists is the lowest, mm-hmm. to what were you referring? It is a Eurobarometer survey, uh, which was conducted in 2019 in whole Europe uh, about Europeans' views. There is some argument saying that transparency will not necessarily lead people to actually trust because it may just confuse them or overload them with information. What would you respond to that? I think the distinction there, it's not about transparency, but about uncertainty, how to communicate uncertainty. I definitely believe in transparency, particularly in that age we shouldn't be talking about. How transparent should we be? Uh, should we be fully transparent or not? It shouldn't be our question. But uh, in terms of communicating the uncertainty, again, there's a debate among researchers because uncertainty information is a bit scientific information. And when you tell public too much uncertainty or present it in a very uncertain way, okay, there's here the novel product. However, uh, there is so much uncertainty that it will cause this harm, for example. So uh, normally it means that it's a very small probability that it may harm you, but the public may overestimate it. So here I think the question is uh, how to communicate uncertainty rather than whether uh, being fully transparent or not transparent. Hmm. And you mentioned, I think in one of your papers, that moral concerns may influence consumer behavior more than risk perceptions. I I think it was about genetic technologies, because it's more emphasized there. But it may apply to other novel foods as well. People's political views and religion or moral values, yes, it was found that they affect how they perceive the risks and the risk perceptions are higher 
So it's not so easy to change these beliefs or get support from these people in terms of novel foods and technologies, if you are talking about the moral factors. I mean, people who think that gene editing or genetic modification or creating meat in a lab is not man's job. It is mm-hmm. uh, God's job and we shouldn't do these things. It is nearly impossible to change the belief there. Yeah, because it's something that is so inherent in a certain belief system based on a certain worldview that no rational argumentation mm-hmm, could mm-hmm. really address that, right? Yeah, yeah. But of course, it's a certain group of people. Uh, and again, for example, among right-wing people in terms of politics, they are not as supportive as left-wing people, uh, novel foods and novel food technologies. Regarding food sustainability or agriculture, what is it? controversial or unusual opinion that you have that many people would disagree with? Hmm. Well, I'm not very pessimistic about the future. I'm not very pessimistic about 2030s, 2050s, because as you know, there are really terrible scenarios where people don't have enough food, there are no varieties, so very limited varieties of foods, etc. Yes, I, I agree, we harm the nature and we do things that we shouldn't do. We waste food, we eat too much. However, we do also really good things. And in terms of technology and science, we are advancing as well. So based on all of this, I am not very pessimistic about the future. I believe we will be all good, but we just need to uh, make progress. Thank you for listening. Each season is like an audiobook, and the episodes build upon each other. So check out the other ones to get a full picture. Also, consider listening to season one on cell-cultured products, like real beef or real dairy made without the cow. Or listen to season two on plastic alternatives and sustainable food packaging. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.